Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 624, a uh, best of episode that was previously recorded uh, way back in 2011, the first uh, first year of the show. Uh, and it's with Megan Dahm, who is a great author. Uh, she recently started a podcast uh, as well, and we'll give you all those, uh, those details in the show notes. But um, I think this is a great conversation about perfectionism. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I struggle with that. Which brings me to our sponsor for this week. This episode and this podcast are sponsored by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Um, I've been using them for years. And my next uh, appointment with my therapist, Heidi, is uh, in about a week. And I definitely need to talk about, uh, and I don't even know if they're related, but uh, my struggles with perfectionism and being competitive uh, or feeling competitive because I don't know about you, but there's a feeling in me sometimes that, well, if I'm not going to do well at this, if I'm not going to do as well as everybody else or better than other people, why even try it? It's been with me since I was a little kid. Anyway, I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental parts so they know you came from the podcast. Um... We will be back with brand new episodes uh, next Friday, and uh, I hope the holidays are uh, treating you well, uh, and uh, I know they're not, but I felt like I should say that because uh, let's, you know, let's try to end this on an open note and here now, that conversation with Megan Daum. I'm here with Megan Daum. And I might not even be pronouncing that correctly. We were talking before uh, before we started rolling, and I asked her the pronunciation of her last name, and uh, and you said, "Well, let's let's talk about it uh, uh, while we're while we're rolling." It, is the, has it always been a little bit of a, a, a sticky point about the way people pronounce your name? <laughs> well, I love how you just pronounced it because you put like an umlaut in it. You you actually combined, I spoke a little German in, you combined in college. both versions. So really? there's yeah. Well, what are the two versions? So I grew up with Daum, uh-huh. Megan Daum. It's D A U M. So on one hand, you might think like Baum is is Baum and right. Baum, but everyone always sort of said Dom as as a default, and I was always having to correct everybody, and my parents corrected everybody. And, you know, then I got older and I realized that my cousins and things, you know, who I was really had no relationship with. I mean, my parents distanced themselves from their families um, just for all sorts of neurotic, snobbish, aspirational reasons. Oh, let's get into um, those. And, uh, yeah, we'll just jump right in. But it all it all revolves around the, the na- name pronunciation. So, you know, I noticed that my relatives said Dom and, and uh, you know, my parents were just always saying Daum. And it turned out that when they were first married, you know, they had grown up in um, real provincial uh, 
settings in Southern Illinois. Now I know mm-hmm. you're from the Midwest, so I'm maybe from Chicago. So, okay, yeah. so you know, yeah. so but, many I mean, many you, miles south is yeah, another land. It, it is. You get uh, actually, if you just went 15 miles south of the suburb, I was uh, grew up in in Chicago. It's the boonies. Okay, and it's, this is like yeah. near. Uh, you know, the sort of Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri. I, know exactly. I mean, this is like I know exactly South. what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my parents escaped uh, this setting and... They, through, they both grew up in the same hometown? Yeah, uh, they grew up... Um, my father grew up in Centralia. Mm-hmm. Do you know where that is? Yeah. And my mother grew up in Carbondale, where oh, yeah. SIU where is. SIU so, is yeah. Right, so they went there. And then, you know, through these kind of academic channels, they... Uh, escaped and they ended up um, in, in university settings and they actually ended up at Stanford where I was born. Um, so I guess some, along the way they ran into like a German professor and uh-huh. and he said, well, it's Daum, it's Daum. That's how you pronounce your name. And they were like mortified that they had been such you know, and hillbillies saying and saying Daum all this time. Yeah. So um, my brother and I were raised saying Daum and that's what we always said. And, you know, it's like literally just like a year or two ago, I said to myself, you know what? It's Dom. I'm going to say Dom. Like first I, I, for a while it was like, I just stopped correcting people. Like that was kind of the first step. And, and then I said, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm going to, you know, if if the only way I can emancipate myself from my parents is just to, you know, mispronounce the mispronounced name. Isn't it, it, you know, the way your, your parents were pronouncing your, their name though, should it matter what a professor thinks how it should be Absolutely pronounced? Absolutely, it matters. No, I mean, so I mean, we were. One Are you of those, saying that tongue in cheek? We were one. No, we were one of those families that uh, you know, academia was everything. It wasn't. Um, you know, my father, he, he's a musician, and uh, he was teaching music in, in various places. Uh, in, in in universities and he would like you know he's like not a very political person so he would like not get tenure and stuff and and but you know my mother all she ever wanted to be was an academic wife i mean you know there was it was like an aesthetic thing she wanted um the house with the oriental rug and the mm. built-in bookcases and the hang the, the pot the copper pots hanging sure. from it like you have a yes. little bit they're not copper yes. well maybe they are but no not, uh, you know, they're but there uh, you got you're on the right an- track anodized aluminum yeah okay. close enough yeah, close enough yeah. yeah um so do you think your 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 mother kind of felt like there there w- would be a certain safety in that picture if that picture could be fulfilled that uh, you would be sophisticated and cultured, and there would be a sense of financial security. I mean, it sounds good to me. I've always looked at, at university professors yeah. and think, God, what a great life that's got to be. You've you've got job security. You've got culture, because all college campuses have some degree of culture. Right. Even, um, even SIU, although my parents would never admit that. Right. You know. you've, you've got, you've got uh, intellectual stimulation where, yeah. wherever you want it. Yeah, that that kind of makes sense to me, but... As you write so eloquently, uh, Megan, uh, by the way, is a, uh, a freelance writer, but she's written a couple of books, and she has a column with in, in, in the LA Times, and I read a couple of her articles, and you write so eloquently about the creation of fantasy and when reality comes in mm. and disrupts that fantasy, and that's one mm. of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Mm. Um, I saw that you were a, a listener to the show, yes. and you had tweeted something, and I oh and and so I did I I looked up who you who you were um 
And so you're looking at who tweets about you, aren't you? Uh, sometimes, if they say something that that <laughs> that sounds interesting, uh, yeah. or, no, or no, makes we, it sound... we all do it. It's yes. a horrible uh, function oh, yeah. on Twitter. That oh yeah, and I look at uh, internet comments. I'm, yes. oh, I'm as needy okay. and, and shallow as they get. Yeah. Uh, but I saw that you had a title of a book called "My Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House," and right. and I said that is the perfect kind of guest for this show because. That is its own particular type of, I don't know if sickness is too strong of a word, well, but... it's kind of a pathology. A it's pathology, kind of a, that's a... Per- a yeah. Worldview. Yeah. It's gone yeah. awry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody is kind of a slave to that to some degree or another. We may just may not be willing to admit it, but can you talk about the, the seeds of it in your, in your family? Yeah, I, you know, I think my mother, she, well, first of all, she was really talented at creating a, a beautiful space. She had a r- real eye, and even when we didn't have any money, we always lived in a very appealing-looking house, even if it was kind of like a dumb, dinky house. Uh, but, I mean, there were a couple different threads going on. I mean, w- you know, we never made any money. I mean, my my father... Um, he's like a real, he's, he's kind of a savant. I mean, he's this brilliant musical arranger, um, and, and he's a composer, uh, and he, but he's really like an arranger and an orchestrator. So, um, is he a people person or is he more comfortable with, <laughs> with notes and numbers? Cause my, well, my dad was a ma- mathematician. Oh, and like he a little asperger yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. The borderline, uh, Asperger yeah. kind of, uh, um, there's some of that. He's very, he, as he would say, gregarious. Um, so no, he likes to kind of talk to people, but he likes to talk about the things he knows. He really he he will he will lecture you. He will talk about you know the the my, this minutia when it comes to music and and really obscure details and highly 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 critical. I mean, my parents were like the original commenters. Like before there was internet commenting, right. it's just what we did in our house. Your all day. piece about music is my bag. Um, we'll put a link to this up on our website to, to some of the stuff that, that, that you wrote and obviously to your uh, homepage where all your LA Times articles oh boy, are up. I better update but, it. But your, specifically the one you wrote about coming from a musical family and the pressure to be, uh, you know, to excel at music uh, is so, it's such a great article and it it is... Um, it, it it paints this incredible picture. I, I felt like I was in your living room watching oh, no. your parents um, give you feedback uh, <laughs> and criticism as you as you played the oboe. Well, the o I mean that's the uh, punchline there. I had to play the oboe. I was an oboist, and part of it was that they wanted me to win. You know, they wanted me to win the competitions and get in the all state orchestra and this and that. And Which so, you did. Well, yeah, but I mean the the funny thing is like they didn't sort of put it together that if I had played the violin, I probably would have been as good and still gotten into the orchestra. Just because a lot of people play the violin doesn't mean that a lot of people are good enough to get to, to win the competition. Oh, was the oh, So they the, thought it was a sh- more of a shoe in Like I, they thought, you know, they didn't want me to be deprived of the experience of being in like the, the North Jersey regional band or something, right. you know? <laughs> so, like the yeah. guy in the rock band that plays bass, he knows he can get in because you always need a bass player because very few people set out 
to to play, to play bass because it's not a, it's not inherently it's not, it's a so compelling cool. right. instrument. Right. Well, it's not in front and center and all that. Right. It's funny because I was listening to an interview with Rain Wilson from The Office, and he revealed that he was a bassoonist, and I just thought, oh, perfect. That's perfect. That He's explains exactly a lot. the guy that would be a bassoonist. And one of the indignities, one of the many indignities of being an oboist, is that people often confuse it with the bassoon, and so you know the words have a similar sort of shape to them, just coming mm-hmm. out of your mouth. Like, so they would say, oh, the oboe, isn't that that big thing? And, you know, it's not. It's right. small. It's, uh, the bassoon, is that even a reed instrument? Yes, it is. It's oh, a it double is. reed instrument. What's so, a double reed Meaning instrument? that, you know, like a clarinet has just a single piece of wood that oh. you attach to the mouthpiece of the instrument. Right. So the, the oboe, the reed is made of two pieces and it's actually bound together with string and cork and you stick it in there. And part of being an oboist and a bassoonist too, I guess, is that at some point you're expected to make your own reeds. You, you literally, all oboists, serious ones, professional ones have a whole workshop and they have tools and, and shavers and wood and all this sorts of thing. And and they, they have to make them. It's like some sort of 19th century, exercise where you need an apprentice or something and I could never learn how to make the read I just could not I couldn't get it so even if I had been like the most dedicated uh you know serious oboist I I would have been hindered by my total lack of motor fine motor skills (laughs) is the uh oboe closely related to the clarinet or is that an insulting question my oboe teacher in fact once said the clarinet is not an instrument it's not an instrument. You know, oboists, the thing about the oboe is the reason that it plays the A that tunes the orchestra is that it doesn't, it's, hard, it's the hardest instrument to tune. So the rest of the orchestra literally has to tune to the oboe because it's hard to adjust. And that's just like the perfect metaphor for all oboists. I mean, they will not change, you know, stubborn, they won't change, they're you, not going to sway to anybody. Do you think it's a little bit of, I'm going to claim my place in life uh, that, that, I can defend. I'm going to set up my fort uh, that is off the beaten path so I don't have to compare myself to other people. And then I can say that my thing is unique and singular and nobody can really offer up a good, compelling argument because nobody else does it. Or they, or nobody else knows what it is, or right. knows about it. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. But none of that appealed to me. I, I was not into um, being a misfit or anything like that in high school. I mean, the name of the game for me was fitting in and affiliation. You know, which which do you think was stronger? Your desire to fit in with your peers, or your desire to please your parents? Were they both strong? You okay? Yeah. yeah. What happens if I cough? You're gonna edit that out? No, just no. Said, it's... Oh, it's so real. <laughs> Um, what was stronger? My desire? Well, that is a good question. I mean, part of it, you know, my parents wanted me to, you know, it's that horrible catch 22. And it's funny. I always say my, my parents are like the whitest Asians you've ever met because, you know, like you see this in a lot of Asian parents, like they want the kid to succeed, but, but they, they don't want them to be social. Like they want them to be popular, but they don't want to, them to do any of the things that's necessary to be popular. I know I'm making a huge generalization and I'm going right. to get like, I'm being really racist. I'm, okay. I'm not, I don't mean that way at all. I, I don't think it's a thing that you see in, in high achieving, often yes. first generation immigrant parents. And, and my parents were, were none of those things. I mean, they they were high achieving in the most 
um, most particular way. Like that, they didn't care if I basically failed half of my classes. Like if I was playing the oboe well, <laughs> if right. I was practicing, right. they didn't care. And I did fail math quite often. But to answer your question, I think yeah, they wanted me to be to be well adjusted and to represent them well in the world. But they didn't like me acting like a kid. And certainly not like a teenager. What do you think they wanted you to act like a prodigy, a musical, a well-behaved um, or just musical like prodigy? Because I mean, you were kind of a prodigy. You you didn't practice well, that much, and you made the all-state band. Yeah, you made I mean, first there chair. Many of players. Oh, uh, I think you're being self-deprecating. I, well, the fact that you made first chair yeah. at, at, in your college orchestra um, and. You didn't practice. No, I didn't practice. I mean, I had a huge aptitude. My brother and I both have, uh, you know, my brother actually pursued music and went on and, and does it now, but not in a like, you know, way, you know, it, like we never learned theory and all that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously we read music, um, but no, I mean, I think that I had enough of my, you know, I had inherited enough aptitude from my parents, especially my father. And I had my father standing over me, you know, beating a, pencil against the music stand talk, every talk. night for hours and crying and screaming i mean you know all that, that. you crying and screaming or him, him crying and screaming <laughs> no me describe a typical day uh typical practice session oh well <clears throat> he would be up in his studio working he worked at home he worked in the attic we lived in new jersey by the way mm. most of this is taking place in new jersey um and he had a he had a studio up in the attic and he would be working and i would come home from school and, you know, I had to practice for a certain amount of time and I would get it out and I would start practicing and he would come running down, you know, he would interrupt his work and come running down and it would just, you know, a few pointers would just turn into this like hours long coaching session and, and there would be, you know, screaming and tears and I'd be stomping off. And you know what's so funny about that, that piece, Music is My Bag, it ran, <clears throat> it ran in harper's magazine mm. a long time ago like more than 10 years ago and uh my my uh my father hated it he hated the piece he was really insulted he was very embarrassed um and he was angry with me i mean this has been a pattern with my parents they they, they really they've not been fans of my work i mean you know they're supportive and all that but the actual content again it's like we want you to be successful but we don't want you to do or say the things that are necessary to like be successful in sure. an authentic way um and uh, he was he was upset about the piece for all kinds of reasons and and i would talk to friends about it and they said really i i would think the only thing that would be upsetting to a parent about that piece is your description of of the practicing and the screaming and the crying and and my father said, actually, oh, no, that didn't bother me at all. That No, why? What's wrong with that? That's like, you know, an example of... What bothered him? To, oh, um, just sort of... Because I assume that's what the, the, would have bothered him, is that he came across no. as, as controlling. Oh, no, he was proud of that. He was proud of that. That was... That, was was not an issue for him at all oh it was things like just sort of mocking sending up the the culture of like the marching band and the band culture i mean the piece is called music is my bag because i don't know if you oh my does god this, do you, these you, things you... still exist the tote bags like from npr that you know you would get in the pledge drive and they said I, music is my bag I, I i think so i was i was not a um Though I played music, it was more my friends and I would get together, smoke weed, and play Led Zeppelin. Oh, you so played you played like you, in a rock. You played like guitar or something. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not officially like in bands. Uh, bad. I mean, mediocre. <laughs> you know, the definition of mediocre. Um, 
it, we did it to entertain ourselves. But I knew y- your group Ugh. of people because you hung out at a certain table in the lunchroom and it's so you did you nail it so well in your in your article um it's it's but here's the thing i didn't eat at that table i refused to eat at that table who did you hang with oh well that you know i i would sort of i couldn't commit to any group i mean this has always been my problem like i can't i don't really want i i think everyone is fake like this is really my my sort of my sort of root problem i think is that i can't quite believe anyone is for real so like if it would be the the band well for one thing i you know there was a big distinction between the band geeks and the orchestra geeks so if i had to choose i would be in the orchestra please uh highlight that difference for me because the band the band people were like they were really taking this seriously as a social outlet it was like this is where this was like geek love like there was you could you could get laid by another geek if you were in the band and you would take this really seriously orchestra people were too um they 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 were real they they were sort of like better students and and more serious again like more asians right Right. you know because you had strings and everything the band was the band was not as serious about music as the orchestra Uh, the the band was wearing it as a badge of this is part of my personality whereas the orchestra people were more it was a love of music and achievement yeah don't get me wrong i mean there were some people in the orchestra you know the rock stops here right right so the rock stop is like the thing that cellists put on the bottom and you said and the and the and the uh scarf with the piano keys oh the piano key scarf you saw those in the band too but you know the band it was like you didn't necessarily have to be good the band had like a kind of science fiction yeah. vibe to it you know almost I mean? like a star wars convention kind with instruments of, kind of kind yeah um so so i no i didn't want to hang out with the band and i didn't really want to hang out with the orchestra and then it was like i would i was on the speech team also and i liked that but what, i didn't what moved you at that age what did you love you know what did i love i loved the idea of escaping um and by I guess, I mean, we had moved to this affluent, very white bread suburb in northern New Jersey when I was about nine. And before that, we had lived in Austin, Texas. So can you imagine, I mean, being taken away from Austin and, and Plop, <laughs> you know, down in New and, Jersey? Yeah. Um, and so there was always this kind of cognitive dissonance that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Like there was something too starchy about this town and and too... Uh, um, <clears throat> D- describe what you did in the article about about where you were living in New Jersey and the fact that it was this affluent uh, neighborhood where people moved there because the school system was good. So there really weren't people there who weren't parents oh, yeah. or kids. Can you talk about that? Right, uh, that, right. That dynamic in no, the culture. No, this is. I mean, this these places exist. This is like I grew up in one. Okay, you yeah. did in Chicago, outside uh, of Chicago, in, in the suburbs of Chicago. What, what suburb are you from? I'm from Homewood, but we shared a high school with the wealthy suburb called Flossmore. Uh-huh. And so um, when I went to high school and, and I saw suddenly. Oh, these are the children of millionaires. Oh. Oh, these are the kids that take AP classes and do this. I, you know, I came from a kind of a more of a, um, I wouldn't say blue collar, but definitely not that, not from from millionaires. And these people were loaded, this, the, the people that lived in Flossmoor, and mm. their kids were driven mm. really, really hard. And all of a sudden, I went from feeling like, oh, you know, I'm a person of average intelligence to like, holy shit, 
there's a lot of smart people and a lot of driven people out there in the world. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was like, well, fuck. I so can't you co- were like smoking pot. On yeah. The I was like, I can't yeah. compete with these people. Yeah. I'm just going to hang out in the middle of the pack and get C's. But that's kind of liberating. Um, I suppose so. But when it's under a cloud of weed, uh, and, and you're, you know, four foot 10 and weigh 85 pounds <laughs> and you have glasses, nothing about that feels, feels good yeah. except getting high. Uh-huh. But, but I want to go, go well, back to you talking about your, so yeah, my town, it, you know, we, I don't think there were, I mean, I'm sure there were a few millionaires, but no, it wasn't like a millionaire town. It was a town where a lot of the dads worked on wall street. You know, they would take the train nine 11, this town got hit really hard. Nine 11, a lot of cars in the, you know, train station parking lot kind of thing. Like this was a town, um, very, very Catholic, um, you know, sort of Protestants and, and Catholics, but it had a real sort of Roman Catholic feel to it. Um, just, how, far, how far far from Manhattan? <laughs> well, as the crow flies, about 20, 25 miles, but nobody ever went into the city. It was like unheard of, you know, and, and you know, I think my parents had moved to the New York area. I mean, I think they thought we just basically sort of lived in New York or they thought that's what they were getting into. And then when we got there, they were like, you know, our neighbors, they hadn't been to the city in 12 years or something. So yeah, no. So you get these towns where the public schools are good and people move there solely for their kids. And so what you have are, is a population where it's like, there's a bunch of kids and often they can't afford to really move there until they get a little more established. So the kids aren't really, you know, there's not a lot of like five-year-olds even. There's right. like, they started, they started around like nine, 10, you know? And so you have a lot of like people between nine and 18. Right. And you have a lot of parents between like, I don't know, 35 and 55. Yes. And then there's no one else. Yes. Like I didn't know what a graduate student was. Like I knew what a college student was sort of because they would come back and they'd put the sticker on the car, you know, that was the big right. thing and um but no. I there was like the, there was nobody else. You you were like, you know, either a kid or a parent. Right. So And and so then you described in in the article how what your cultural choices were as a kid that didn't have exposure to anything other than your parents and other kids. And, and you talked about the, the music you would listen to and the way you oh. guys would dress. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, you're, you're describing exactly where I grew up. We, we wore button down shirts. We wore polo shirts. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it, we this didn't, is funny. Th- you're th- con- yeah, you're conflating. There's, there's two articles. Oh, that two were, different no, articles. No, no, but it's okay. great because they. Well, I they did read two together. different articles. No, I know, yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, there's, I, I, you're, it's great because you're going back and forth. And there's yeah. one where I talk about. I think I talk about the button-down shirts, and that was in this piece called "My Misspent Youth," which was yes in the New Yorker uh, originally. I and think great, in '99. Great piece, and it's the title piece to my essay collection from many years ago. But okay, so that. I was talking about this. Yeah, I mean, it's this kind of like, you remember like the risky business aesthetic, like the pink, the pink Oxford shirt. Yes. And the kids, their idea of kind of a wild time was to go to somebody's house and put on the big chill soundtrack. Remember that? It's like, yeah, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Woo. You know, like that, they were, they were, they were imitating 
some kind of nostalgia of their parents. Mm-hmm. Like they were imitate. They, it was like this fifties thing. Yeah. And there, it, it, when I started going to this high school where we merged with the rich kids, all of a sudden people cared what brand of beer you were getting loaded on <laughs> and were snobby about stereo systems. And uh. it was like this whole world where all of a sudden everybody was so much more materialistic and it, and I could recognize it and it saddened me in a certain way, but, you know, it's like you throw your lot in with a certain group of people and you're in with that lot and you kind of go with the flow and you become a little more materialistic. But the way you described it uh, when you went to college at, uh, uh. at, at Vassar, can you, can you talk about um, starting with when you decided you want to go to college and, and creating that? Actually, start with telling the story about when you went into the, uh, that apartment in, uh, in, in New York oh, and yeah. creating that fantasy. Yeah, seminal moment. So when I was a senior in high school, I guess it was the summer before my senior year in high school, my father, uh, you know, like I said, he does a lot of, you know, he was an orchestrator. So he had to go to the apartment of a music copyist to pick up some parts or drop them off or something. And uh, so we drove, I was learning, I had just gotten my license and I was learning how to drive a stick shift. And so we drove in our little Plymouth Horizon from New Jersey into into Manhattan and this guy's apartment was on the Upper West Side um you know and like one of those kind of funky old but beautiful grand buildings when and pre-war, you know, pre-war gar- with the elevator that has the gate that sure. closes and kind of rattles up scatman crothers working the buttons yeah no no not even that <laughs> you know like the you know there's it has that everything kind of smells a little bit like urine you mm-hmm. know but also like must you know but it's that old it's a sense of of authenticity. I mean, that's a word I really overuse and I always have, but it, it was, it was that feeling. And I, I went into this apartment and it was like pretty modest and it was, you know, they had the oriental rugs, but they weren't trying too hard. And mm-hmm. it was just like, you know, very solid kind of, kind of, you know, stone architecture and the wood floors and everything. And I just said to myself, this is life I want this is where I want and this was probably on like 104th street and West End Avenue something like that and um, from that moment on I became what is wrong with me from that moment on I became totally devoted to the cause of getting into this kind of life and it affected what kind of college I was going to go to specifically in New York you mean you yeah, wanted to oh live no, in yeah. I wanted of... to live on 104th Street and West End Avenue. Like I was this is my problem. I've always I'm like very specific. I can't That's let go. I can't specific. let go. Yeah, no, I can't. It's like, oh, I you know, I'm I, it I can't just say, you know, this is generally what I want. Like I I fixate on something. Yeah. Um so, yeah, no, I I I I wanted to to do this and I I kind of thought I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I certainly wasn't going to be an oboist. So I had this kind of system for for um, choosing what kind of college I was going to go to. And it was like, you know, part of it came from reading the wedding announcements in the New York Times uh, and, and seeing where these people went to college and what kind of jobs they had and, and, right. and also where I was going to get in. I mean, the thing is, I was like one of these people. I, I was a horrible student in math and science. Like, I would fail. I would, I would be in the most advanced English class and, you know. How did you get brilliant into Vassar Oboist. failing I don't math know. Well, see, this science. is one of my... <laughs> When we do the fear off, I will tell you that I'm yeah. afraid that Vassar is going to like realize I never even got in in the first place. So, I mean, can you graduate from a school that you actually didn't get into? Like that's, I, I don't know. I mean, I was so obsessed with 
my big fear was that I was going to end up like going to Rutgers or something. And not that Rutgers is a bad school, but that my, my, my social milieu would not change. It that wouldn't I would have the be cachet. Stuck, I would be stuck with the, the Benetton sweaters and the big chill soundtrack. If, you know, if I was lucky, you know, if, for, for the rest of my life because I was failing math. I mean, that, that's what's like horrible about being in high school, especially in this kind of school. Like you, 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 it's, you get to the point where you're thinking and it's kind of true that if I don't pass this class or get an A or whatever, my life will literally not line up the way yeah. that it should. Yeah. So, so it was really intense. Where do you think that comes from? Do you think that comes from the the brain that that kid has that it, that there's that um, negativity and creativity that extrapolates their life out to the nth degree, or just, do you think that's pounded into you by your environment? I think it's pounded into you be- in that there's no there's only sort of one trajectory. I mean, you know, I could have, what I realize now is I probably, I could have gone to like a big state school somewhere in the Midwest, for instance, and found a niche for myself and found interesting people and found some version of the Oriental rug on the hardwood floor. (laughs) And it would have taken a little longer. Uh, But I did not have the imagination at that time or something. I was, I was so terrified of, of, not kind of getting to where I felt I needed to be. It was like one of these things, like I felt like I was a good writer and that I was fairly interesting, but that I had enough, um, I had enough sort of handicaps that, that if I didn't like really nail it, if I didn't really get to where I needed to be, I was, I was never going to make it. And it was ironic because then I went to Vassar and I, I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I, I spent the whole time like, I can't, I just need to to graduate from here and be able to say I went to Vassar. And what made you choose Vassar? Because when you would look at the social pages of the New York Times, uh, you saw that a lot of people had graduated from Vassar and you thought, well, that will get me into that pre-war building that I love. Yeah, that was my logic. And that's what it says in the uh, brochure about Vassar. It says, if you go here, you will get to live on 104th Street and Broadway if you you go to the school. No, I mean, it's like an annex to New York City. No, I could the places I could have gone with my great I mean obviously if I could have gone to Yale that would have been better but there was no way in hell I was going to Yale so uh I managed to get in there I mean I I, I sort of you know I, I pitched myself as an oboist I said you know you need an oboist in your orchestra I made a tape I sent it to them I mean I like flung myself at them uh that's what you're talking yeah, about yeah yeah and so did you uh, apply to Yale no, my guidance counselor wouldn't even let me apply. I mean, this is the other thing about these towns. They they don't want to have um, kids not getting into schools on their record. They don't want to have rejection. Right. So they don't let you apply to places that would be a stretch. I mean, I had to, you know, I, I, I don't think my guidance counselor wanted me to apply to Vassar even. Describe what that, that was like when it sunk in when you got to Vassar and realized you were... Uh, this was a whole new world for you. What did you feel like? What were you thinking? I think when it was, I realized that there were people from these wealthy private schools who literally dropped acid every day and still had gotten into Vassar. It's like I had had to, to just try, I had had to do everything possible, you know, every, everything in my, in my toolbox. I, I had to get out and really make a case for myself. And these people, LSD every day. Of high school. And were and they, they succeeding in. in Vassar? Well, they succeeded enough to, to get in. 
and they didn't i mean you can't really flunk out of a school like that i mean you can't no it's hard it's hard. They want your money, and and a lot of junkies too in uh, Ivy League uh, Ivy League school. Surprising oh, number like heroin? of heroin addicts. Oh yeah, really? Oh yeah. yeah. From 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 what I've heard, um, there are, are. I mean, not like it. It's not like they're littered with junkies. <laughs> there were the, but the, there, the, the syringes heard, all over heard, the Vassar campus. I've heard more than a few stories about the you know the the kids at Harvard that you know shoot heroin on the weekend or oh, snort heroin on the weekend. I had heard of a few people yeah. snorting heroin, but I hadn't, I wasn't aware of anybody being an addict. Yeah. Um, no. So I, yeah, I mean, it was just, I like to expand things kind of, in my no, mind. Absolutely. I flesh but, it no, out. There's no I reason, punch it there's up. no reason we shouldn't believe it. That's right. There's I no like reason. to punch it up in yeah. my brain. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, um, again, it was, did you feel like it was a mistake at a a certain point in your freshman year where you were like, Oh my God, this is, this is a group that I can't compete with, or this is a group that I don't even want to compete with. No, because I was determined to make it work. And the thing with me is that the way I am wired, I was unable to see that there were like a whole lot of people there who were on scholarships and who were not these private school people. And I was just not interested in hanging around with them. I, I wanted to sort of be in the, you know, in the cool group. And then, but then I wouldn't even really like the cool group. And again, it goes back to like, I don't eat at the band table. I could never find a group that, that I wanted to be a part of that felt authentic. I felt like everyone is faking it. Like I joined the newspaper for a while. I started writing articles and I quit because I couldn't stand sitting around there like on deadline, you know, and they would just be like, get on the horn. You know, they were like imitating people in a newsroom. And I just thought this is just, I can't, I can't bear it. If you could have created a group of people that you would have felt comfortable with at, at your school, what, how would you have de- described them? What would they have been like? You know, I don't, I really don't know because I think that it's just me. This, there's something wrong with me. I mean, this is just something that I do. That is it, I is it that Groucho Marx thing where you I can't don't respect be, anybody that, who would want to hang out with you? I don't you? want to belong to any club Country that would board. have me as a member. Um, yeah. And then it's just that I can't, I think that I'm so obsessed with like, what is real and what is fake and if someone is acting fake or if they're putting on, you know, my mother was a real, um, she had had this big transformation when she was about 50 where she just became this like theater person. This is a whole other story, but she had, she was like kind of affected. She went from being this like sort of miserable, slightly frumpy, really frustrated housewife basically to becoming this like diva and very affected and and it really it just I couldn't take it I mean I was like allergic to it and so um I I I just think I've been I've been allergic to these things generally all my life like I still do it I can't you know I I I have friends and I have a circle of friends and it's definitely I'm more comfortable now than I ever have been with my with my world and the people I know and, and all that. But I, I certainly don't like, I'm never going to have a click I, mm-hmm. that I can't, I, I don't understand. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds to me, you know, as I listen to you talk, like criticism never takes a break in your head. Never. No, it it's like, I can't, it's really the default setting. Yeah. It's like, and, um, it's hard because it's one of those things. It's on some level, it serves me well. I've made my career out of it. I'm an opinion columnist. I'm a culture criti- cultural critic. Okay. Um, but you can't. But outside, never, no, outside of your stops. writing, 
talk about talk about what that voice in uh, your head does well i mean i I'm, how dark does it get in your oh, in your head I cr- in your emotions I, mean, I criticize myself oh constantly like you know it do you can, ever think about suicide or is that too dark no but i there i i can i have had moments where i think okay i can understand how somebody would get to this point i yeah. can understand because you know i think it's like I think this is probably true of a lot of people like, you know, you're growing up and you're in your 20s and you're struggling and you're even in your 30s and you think like, oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of depressed. I'm kind of down. But it's situational. It's because I don't want to be in this like, I, you know, I want to I want something better. And I, I, you know, I'm not happy with. And then you get to a point where it's like you have what you want. I mean, I, I have I'm married. I have a beautiful house. I, you know, my career is okay you know it could be better but it could be a hell of a lot worse and it's like wow you're still you still feel this way like this you know this this ringing is still in your ears and that that is scary that is scary and i I could tell you of somebody who has lived that and wanted to commit suicide with all the stuff on paper that society tells you you need to have to be happy that is a scary fucking crossroad to to be at. But in many ways, it can be the most liberating thing in your life because it forces you to really look deeply within yourself at what what it is that you hold important and what it is you're obsessing about and what it is that you're worrying about. Because if it's going to kill you, you pretty much have to either let it kill you or jettison it. Uh, or, or otherwise, it's this kind of... Maybe I should just speak for myself, but it's this kind of day-to-day thing, um, and and it doesn't go away forever. It's funny. It just yesterday, I was thinking to myself, "Shut up!" That voice in my head that keeps <laughs> telling me, it, it keeps offering up something that has to be wrong. That that it it is not possible that everything is okay, and. See, at least you say shut up to that. I say shut up to myself just in daily life. Like, oh, I, you know, I order, I'm, I'm in a, you know, go to the dry cleaner. Shut up. So you always <laughs> believe that the, the critical voice is correct. Yes. All critical voices are correct. Otherwise, it's sentimentality. How can you believe oh, it? Oh, that's such a lie. <laughs> that's such a lie. I mean, I'm saying this, you know, intellectually, yeah. yes, I know yes, this is I a know. lie. But, but I, how do you get there emotionally? That's different. You can know, know. You can know intellectually you're beating yourself up, but still not be able to, to stop it. And I think at the at the core is this lie that tells us that self criticism is the path to being a better person, and right at right. a certain point it served us, but then it begins to destroy us. And how do you know when to turn that critical voice on and 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 off? Yeah. And I was thinking about this yesterday, and I think it's recognizing the difference between your conscience and and what is your critical voice and your conscience i think is a good thing to have that's you know that's when you're able to reflect and look at yourself and that benefits not only yourself but society and i think for me i know that it's some a, a thought is coming from my conscience when it's about what is the right thing to do it's my self critical voice when it's Will this enable me to survive? Hmm. But do you find also that there's something almost self-soothing about the critical voice? It used like, to be. Oh, it see, used to be. But me. it's 
No, it, I've just had to hit the depths to, to find another way to, to, to live. It almost feels like an OCD thing. It's like yeah. cutting. Like, you know, I'm yes. not a cutter. I wasn't a cutter. But like, you know, that it's like, oh, I'm going to beat myself up now. Like it's because it it's familiar. Good. It feels, it feels good. familiar. Yeah. 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 Because uh, and, I, and I've said this before on the podcast. Uh, oftentimes the painful known is feels like a better choice than the um supposedly promised comfortable unknown because the unknown is so is often scarier than anything yeah i mean and i I, it really ties into what we were talking about what we were emailing about with the like with the internet comments and all that stuff i mean the because if you are somebody with a a penchant for criticism and self-criticism I mean, reading stuff people write on the internet, I mean, that's like porn. Reading yeah. people, the, the vitriol and people going off on, on other people, it's like, it's totally addictive. Do you, think, do you think the reason that is, is because it's not necessarily that it makes us feel bad about ourselves, but it allows us to keep thinking about ourselves? Well, it's narcissism, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I had to stop reading my own comments. I, I mean, one of the things about... What do you mean your own comments? My comments? own comments. Uh, sorry, on the, on the internet. Like, you know, one of the things about being a newspaper columnist is that the thing is up on the web and invariably every week there's like, you know, pages and pages of, you know, people telling me that I, you know, need to be fired and that I'm an idiot. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, and sometimes it's really personal and, you know, it's yeah. it's... Um, and, and you can read it and I think, you know, you want to, you sort of keep reading because you're waiting for someone to come along and defend you. Right. Um, and, and then, and it just goes on and on. But, but so, you know, I, I made myself stop reading my own comments, but what happens is now I read everyone else's comments. Like I, I cannot read an article online without looking at the comments and I, and I see some, you know, idiot saying something and then I just keep going until somebody else, you know, bashes that person. And it's right. like watching these little fights um and it's like it's created this whole sort of like little world like the subculture of hate it's like 21st century soap opera you know but it's but it's real yeah i it's but it's so it's so hateful it's so interesting to me this is something i've been writing about lately like this this idea of hate and you're a hater like there's all these iterations of the word hate like Mm -hmm. hated to you know if you read like the cool the blogs or like the 20 somethings they talk about haterade and hateitude and right and um, you know who i hate people who spell it h and the and the number eight I know. I can't, I don't care like how I, I, you know, with, with Twitter and all that, like I can't, if I can't spell out a word with all letters, it's really, I don't need to say that. I don't need to tweet. So what what do you think? uh, I mean, the the classical way to look at that is these are people that hate themselves. And so they go on the internet because it's easier to hate somebody else than, you know, than to really look inwardly at what you don't like about yourself. Do you, do you think there's anything beyond that um i you know i a lot of them hate themselves but you know it's funny i met somebody the other day at a party this lovely woman i was talking to her and then it turned out she was a commenter she's an internet commenter and now that doesn't mean she's one of those awful ones but right. it's like she, she spends a lot of time commenting and i'm thinking is there some is 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 this providing some sort of outlet that people didn't used to have is there a lack of FaceTime mm. like is there some I, maybe people don't 
like the, the the argument discourse has changed like we we're less in a culture where where sort of intelligent debate is um easily accessible and it just becomes this sort of either screaming on cable tv or this like subverted you know so anonymous mean commenting well it, it doesn't surprise me because our culture prizes winning above everything you know everything is is made into a list what's number one did you win did you lose so why wouldn't opinions uh, also fall you know fall into that that category yeah it's just a natural progression um the, our country is so uncomfortable with the idea of number two being okay Right. And uh, yeah, we like rankings. And, right. Yeah. And so, so for something to be valid, it, it often has to be, you know, did you win? Were you the best? And uh, and that is its own particular sickness that is, uh, I, I think, is one one of the most destructive forces uh, that you can plant in children's minds is that if they aren't the best, if they aren't number one, then they've somehow failed. So did you feel like you had to be number one growing uh, up? At certain Even things. Even with these, other ki- these kids from the other town who were dominating you? Uh, I remember feeling like I had to be the funniest person in the room. Mm. Uh, starting probably around high school, my ego began to become attached to... Because I, you know, I was small. I had glasses. I had nothing going on. And the only thing I had that I, that I felt like I could compete with other people with was my sense of humor. So I took great pride in that. But if I was in a room and somebody said to somebody else, you're the funniest person I've ever met, that would just crush me. Because I would think, (laughs) how can I ever become a professional comedian if I'm not even the funniest person in the room of non-comedians? Well, and that's such a no-win because nothing is more subjective than humor. You You can't possibly rank that. Yeah, Yeah. you know, tell that to a four foot ten narcissist uh, who's high. With Zeppelin playing in well, the background. Well, and just, I mean, you know, you, we, we, you know, when people think that, like, when you think about how long the family circus ha- has been uh, in, in print, <laughs> that's all you need to think. How does cr- criticism circus. not work its way over to that or the comic strip Nancy? How do those manage? Nancy? Does... Do you mean Kathy? No. What's Nan- I don't know what Nancy, Nancy is. Nancy was pre-Kathy. Nancy <laughs> was uh, just this, I, I would look at that comic strip every day as a kid and go, who likes this? Yeah, there are those how people, this... though. How is this still? I, I didn't even understand where the joke was in it. No, I, it's yeah, and and uh, it's it's terrifying. As, Cause, as cause a like person, family circus, yeah. I could at least see what they were attempting to make really? you laugh at. But yeah, I, I mean, as as a creative person, that kind of thing is so terrifying because it's like, wow, they really, they they really aren't gonna get it. Like enough people have no interest in what I'm doing that I, I shouldn't bother. But that's why this kind of, you know, I think that we're in this time now with like podcasts and this. It's very, it's very niche. Like niche yeah. is rising. Yeah, it, it really is. And you put yourself out on the internet and you read enough comments and you realize you are somebody's Nancy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as much as you hate to admit it. I just want to be Kathy and, you know, <laughs> eat a whole haagen It's my answer to everything. I, I ate a whole haagen So yeah. one of the, one of the things that you wrote about that, that, uh, I found really interesting was when you talked about going to graduate school and taking out these school loans because you still had this fantasy of living in this pre-war building and being a writer. And can you kind of talk about how that began to unravel and the stress, the mental stress of, of that? This piece that you had written that I read was in 1999. I hadn't written, read anything 
since then. So when you showed up at my door, I had no idea that you have dug yourself out of this debt. So I, I would like to hear your perspective starting from the graduate school and, and the is, fantasy is, to where you are today. This is so great because that means I'm 29 to you. I might as well be 29, <laughs> which I was in 1999. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I I graduated from college. I moved to New York. I got an apartment on 100th Street between Riverside and West End Avenue. A so successful, just, a successful uh, woman would have gotten a, an apartment on 104th. Well, I mean, successful in my terms. I mean, this yes. obviously, you know, I, I got a job at Condé Nast. I got a job at a at a at a beauty magazine, um, Allure. I worked at Allure. It's a magazine yeah. about skin. It's a lot of exfoliation. <laughs> and were you happy? Uh, no. Uh, no. I, I did not want this job. I mean, I wanted to, I thought I could like get a job at Esquire. I mean, I considered myself like a literary person, but you know, the jobs, this sounds horrible to say now compared to what these graduates are going through, but it was 1992. It was a bit of a recession. It was really hard to get a job. So I was lucky to get a job at Condé Nast, you know, big, famous company. And There's did you a, think it was a stepping stone to where you would eventually want yes, to work? Yes, which it was. It was, okay. yeah. Um, and I, I worked there, and, and it was kind of great in a lot of ways. I had a boss who was um, so insane, um, and, and she basically couldn't read. Uh, and, and I just got to do her job. I mean, she was one of these people that um, knew enough to know you know, to let her assistant really, really do the job. So, so I did a lot. Um, you know, I was very miserable in the culture of Condé Nast. I mean, Devil Wears Prada, that's the perfect description of, of that give me, world. Give, give me some, some slices. Uh, oh, uh, throwing up in the bathroom. I mean, there's a lot of anorexia. You were then. No, no, no. I, I could never, no, because I could never get it together enough to like be anorexic or anything. I mean, you know, this, this you know, that's another failure. Like I can't even, you you're, know. I, you're kidding, of course. No, well, I mean, that's, I know it's terrible to say. No, but it's like, I can't, this is why I loved what, I, I know Teresa was on your show. I know yes. that's where I heard her. I, okay. I, I was so moved by what she was saying because it's like, you can, you know, you can hate your body, but you, but part of it is that you, you can't even, you hate the fact that you can't even be anorexic. It's like you fail, you know, you're sort of a failed, you know, I, I was constantly think I'm fat, but I, I'm a failed anorexic. I can't even like, you know, get to the, I'm not even in the real stuff. So, uh, no, I was, you know, I didn't have enough money. I dressed horribly. I mean, these are, these are girls who would like, you know, their parents would have, were paying for their own apartment on Fifth Avenue and they would have timeshares in the Hamptons. And, um, I was like schlepping down from 100th street, which I wanted to be. I mean, my sensibility was this more intellectual, uh, you know, kind of literary. I was not into fashion. I was not into was that, was society. Was that area considered, uh, intellectually hip because Columbia was, was yeah, near there? Yeah, it's just always been very, I mean, I mean now it's, closer it's, to now Harlem it's so or... gentrified. Well, it's just, it's, it's not, um, it was always this sort of socialist, uh, you know, ac kind of literary academic neighborhood. I mean, it's so gentrified now that I right. think these distinctions are probably moot. But yeah, at the time it was you know, above 96th Street. It was like, whoa, you live above 96th Street? Like that's... So it's you know, kind it was of bohemian. A little sketchy. Yeah, it's a little bohemian. It was yeah. a little, you know. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, I hated this world of Condé Nast. And again, it was like, I felt like I was back 
in in high school, like, how am I going to get out of this? If I'm just going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm succeeding at this job. I'm pretty good at this. I could easily get promoted and continue to work at these magazines and continue to be surrounded by these people. And it's not what I want. I wanted to be a writer. And you're, and you're struggling to make ends meet. I was meet. making $18,000 a year. Yeah. I had and you're roommates. living in Manhattan. Yeah. Well, I mean, back then I had two roommates. We had this rent stabilized apartment the rent was i'll never forget this the rent was seventeen seventy six seventy six. so Hilarious. like just about eighteen hundred dollars uh 76 cents is on the end of that yeah. yeah so um you know i was paying like around five something and uh i you know it was, it was okay but i i finally said you know the only thing that's gonna make me happy because at one point I got really depressed. I remember I came out of a, I went to a movie at Lincoln Center and I I came out of the movie. I was still working in Allure at this point and it was like this fall day and there were all these great looking people with their great scarves and their cool glasses and everything. And I came out of the movie and I saw the line of people standing waiting to go into the next show and I just thought, they have no idea how bad this movie is. They, I, I know something they don't, and it's how bad this movie is. And it was also, I'm never going to be like them. There's, there's a yawning gulf between this world that I am inhabiting at, at this magazine about skin right. <laughs> and exfoliants and this world of like people who are engaged in the arts and have cool scarves and glasses, and I can't get there. And... And the only, it was actually, I, I became profoundly depressed. It was a scary, th- not profoundly depressed, but depressed to the point where um, I, I, I started going to therapy. And I mean, I was really, it was for the, you know, the first time. And, and I, I finally figured out that the only way I could save myself was to go to an MFA program, <laughs> which is not something that most psychiatrists would right. prescribe uh, for, the, um, for those that don't know yeah. mfa is masters in fine master arts. of fine arts yeah. totally useless degree for creative writing i was <laughs> going to be a fiction writer um i was writing short stories they were, and, and what had you majored in english english of course okay. yeah i wrote a creative thesis it basically in in college i majored in in smoking cigarettes and staring at the wall i i, I really did i i i did very little work. I was really, I, I'm, I'm really ashamed of it. We have the shame thing coming up later, right? This is right. one of the things I'm ashamed. I, I'm really ashamed of my college performance. I, I, I did not take advantage of, of the education. I just kind of had like fucked up relationships and you know all that kind of stuff. But isn't stuff. that part, is part of, of part of yes. what's being a college is yeah, you're, you're yeah. finding who you are at the same yeah. time as you're trying to to forge your path, you know, economically in the world, and it, it's it's so. There's so much anxiety yeah. uh, be, behind that. I, I don't think anybody does it without. Um, I think anybody does it flawlessly and with comfort. No, no, I think we all sort of wish we could go back. Although I certainly do not uh, want to go back. Um, but uh, I and so, there's a lot of people that would have killed just to have gotten a college degree. Of course, yeah. of course, yeah. yes. Especially at an Ivy League school. Yeah, Vassar's not an Ivy League school. It's not. No, it's a no. Seven Sisters school. It was all women until 1970, and mm-hmm. now it's women and gay men. The, the yes. people probably just rolled their eyes when I said that Vassar was an Ivy League school, and now I'm feeling shame about the fact that I didn't Ivy know that. You have a lot of Ivy League listeners. So, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. No, that was not sarcastic. Oh, really? It's, no, because it's a really smart show. The, oh. No, seriously. I mean, it's... it's. I, I would, do you have any idea what your demographic is? Um, not really. 
they would be self-loathers and you they're should, spread all, all across the because don't you States. have a questionnaire i do but i don't ask them you should uh, ask what their sat scores were that would be a good one yeah um so yeah i had majored in english I, and, and you had decided at vassar you would you, you had realized I do not want to be a social climber in New York City. Oh, no, I did. I oh, did want did. to be a social climber. I oh, didn't so, understand, so at that point, I didn't understand you what did. it meant. I, I read, I would like read Vanity Fair and think, oh, how can I like be at one of these parties but be the kind of quirky creative one right. in the photograph? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's there, so would, be, there would be awesome. the photograph of uh, some socialite and uh, Sandy Pittman or somebody, right. and then Mary Gateskill, the the fiction writer. Mary Gateskill, who's like very out there and serious, and you know, like not a social climber, would nonetheless be at this party and know these people. That's what I wanted sure. to be. That's yeah. what I wanted. Um, so I, the only place I had any interest in going was Columbia for um, writing program. The most expensive writing program. The most program expensive, in the and they offer no uh, scholarships, basically. Uh, so that's naturally where I went. I took out about $60,000 in loans um, over the time I stayed there for, for three years. And uh, I have to say, I had a great time. I loved it. I really loved it. I had great friends there. I did not. I felt like it was a group I wanted to belong to. Um, Did you feel like that competitive, that social New York competitiveness was much less than it had been at Vassar? It was, it's, it was a totally different animal. It was its own kind of thing. It was like, you know, people living in these funky apartments in Morningside Heights. It was, it was, it was a different thing. Was it, was it more bohemian and artistic goal oriented and less social strata money? Yeah, it was that. And it was also bohemian in a sort of intellectual way. It wasn't like downtown NYU purple hair it was like uptown um uh who knows who knows of, a, a more uh obscure writer or musician to kind of lord over kind everybody of that kind of that but it had a little you know it was just kind of stripped down not pre- sort of pretentious about its lack of pretension you know I, mean? <laughs> I know exactly what you yeah. mean i know exactly Which what is you basically mean. my mo that's yes. my whole like if I had a if I had a decorating magazine or like a design I would say pre- be pretentious about your lack of pretension yes you know it's yeah. you got it yeah how hard can I work at making it look like I'm not trying to look hard uh, right I actually I had I am a person who I paid somebody uh, in, in the house that I that I lived in before this little house that I bought that I lived in and I wrote a book about it I actually paid somebody to make the kitchen cupboards look distressed mm-hmm. look like barn wood I had seen some I had a, a clothing catalog and in the background blurry because they were showing the clothes there was an out of focus it was in a kitchen and there were some cupboards and they looked like barn wood or something mm. and i became so taken with them that i actually had somebody like beat up my kitchen yes. cabinets well that the whole them. french provincial uh, right. thing was you know and to me a woodworker i would look at it and go Oh my God, I spend hours trying to bring out the beauty of wood. Yeah. And these people are paying right. yes, four of times no that for cheap wood to have this shit beat out of it. One of the best tweets I ever read, I don't know who wrote this, it said something like, 
for a woman walking into anthropology, you know, the store yes. is equivalent to a man ejaculating. <laughs> and I can see it. Uh, you know, that going back to what you were talking about, that trying to uh, trying to kind of cultivate that look that you are um, succeeding without trying, that you are hip without caring. You know, at the core of that, to me, is a fear of looking like you're trying hard. Oh, yeah. To, to be loved or wanted. And to me, if I can give any advice to anybody out there, there is such freedom in admitting that you care deeply about what other people think, calling yourself out on it. That, to me, has been one of the most freeing things I've done in a support group saying in front of a group of people, I care desperately what you people think of me. I am so afraid of being judged. I'm afraid that I'm not as good as you. I'm afraid. And just letting that out, it, it, that was a, a turning point in my life. So I just I just wanted to, to mention so that. So how does that manifest outside of a support group setting? Like how would that be in a, like you a become social more, situation? Once you say it out loud to yourself, you then become aware of that instinct in you when you are outside of that support mm -hmm. group because you've said it mm -hmm. and you felt that freedom. So you know that it is a dead end to to have that want in you it keeps up coming back up constantly but you then have a tool that helps you combat it you have an opposing force whereas that thing all my life had run riot with no other force opposing it but me admitting to it out loud in front of people that i, I don't know if humiliating myself is the right word but uh, humbling myself well, yeah. by saying that is an opposing force to that. I guess because if you're not doing that, your self-loathing mechanism is doing it. Yes. So what you're doing yes. is sort of... Yeah, and, and because that's that. also that's an, an appropriate venue for you to say something like that. You know, you wouldn't want to say it in the middle of a, you know, a toast for, uh, you know, at a, at, a, at a bachelor party or something like that. <laughs> you know, there's an appropriate time and place and appropriate people to say that to. But... Um, that has been one that was one of the first steps on my road to beginning to to fight that negative voice in my head that tells me I'm not enough, I don't have enough and 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 i and I don't do enough yeah um but yeah so so let's go back to uh your you take out sixty grand in loans, yeah, so right, it was twenty thousand dollars a year at that time. It's more now, and I ended up staying for for three years, which was great though. I, I learned that I was not a fiction writer, that I was a nonfiction writer. I started writing essays. I found my voice, as they say. Um, so it was, it was actually tremendously productive. And um, I have never really regretted taking out those loans. Uh, well, no, that's not true. <laughs> Many yeah, that piece, I said, that piece that, that I read total in the, lie. That was an utter, utter lie. Yeah. I just said this now. Yeah. Um, right now you don't regret it, but no, in 99, you were filled with I was, remorse. Well, I mean, the, so then I ended up getting about another eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 in debt when I, I, I got out of the MFA program. I, I had, I, I got my own apartment. Like this was the, this was the real slide. Like I, I, I always, you know, I think what put me over the edge, like I bought a fax machine. Like somehow I thought that I would be, it was necessary that I had a fax machine. It kind of, it kind of was back then, you know, like in the nineties, like faxing was yeah, really big. You're connected. So, that's right. You're, you're professional. Yeah. Um, and so I had my own apartment that I could kind of barely pay for. It was about, it was, it was $1,054 a month. 
And uh, I, I had these, you know, I was a freelancer and I would have these cool assignments. You know, it was, it was this kind of life that like, in some ways I was really living large. Like I would get these uh, magazine assignments and I would travel and stay in fancy hotels and things like this. And, and, and but it wasn't paying much, right? Well, it would pay you, but you know, by the time it pays you once, like, it, you know, you get paid for the piece. It's not like you're on a salary. Um, and I, you know, did other things here and there and, and, but it was like, I couldn't quite, the, my student loan payments were every month and they were really steep and I could never quite catch up. And I just slid more and more and more into debt. And, and it wasn't like I was living extravagantly. I thought that I was living, uh, I thought that this fantasy I'd had about the Upper West Side apartment with the rug was I thought that was a bohemian, modest existence. And it really wasn't until I was in my late 20s that it dawned on me, no, this is for rich people. These are rich people's apartments. It is not possible in 1998 to live in an apartment that looks like this unless you've inherited it or you're working in finance or something and you can pay for it. It's like, I always said, you know, in the, those Woody Allen movies, they always have those apartments. Like, you sure. know, Mia Farrow yeah. lives in this sprawling pre-war apartment and she's, she's like, you know, the character is some sort of, you know, struggling actress or something. Right. You know, they're like, they, they run a literary magazine yeah. and they live in this kind of apartment. And, you know, I, it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I realized that apartment in the movie is actually Mia Farrow's apartment. Right. A, a struggling actress doesn't live there. Mia Farrow lives there. Yeah. They shot it in her apartment. So it's like this this myth of this sort of funky existence. I, I realized at that point that I was just paying for it. I, I wasn't even paying for it. I was paying for it on credit. So um, I had an epiphany one day. I remember I was, I was riding the Crosstown bus on 14th Street to see a friend and I was, you know, collection agencies called me. I mean, I had, you know, it was bad. I, there were times that I couldn't, the ATM machine would not give me money. And I sat there and I said, what am I going to do? And I said, I'm going to move to Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, why, why Lincoln, Nebraska? Well, this is, isn't that what everybody thinks when they think, oh my God, I can't, the, the collection agencies I would, call I, I'm going to move to Lincoln. Lincoln, Nebraska is a fine town, but... <laughs> There's a lot of places I would. would, Yeah, I've been to to Lincoln, Nebraska in December, and I got to say, there's few places more bleak than Lincoln, Nebraska when the days are short. Oh, that's when the bald eagles come through. Nice people, good, safe place to live, but uh, kind of very flat and not a ton uh, of stuff going on uh, culturally. Um, this is true. I had, um, just, I mean, this is a really long, uh, answer, which I've written about and I perhaps shouldn't go into in great detail now, but just, just the, the, the short answer is that I had been there doing a magazine story. Um, so I had, I had done some reporting there and I'd stayed there and I, I, I liked it. I'd always had a, like a prairie fetish, like sort of, you know, running um, parallel to this Woody Allen fixation was a fixation on on the prairie and the big sky and, and all this kind of thing. And um, it was terribly romantic to me, you know. Uh, and so I decided that I, I noticed that the place was beautiful to me. I love that kind of austere landscape. The people were really nice and the rents were incredibly cheap. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to dare you. I dare you right now to pack up your apartment and move to Lincoln and 
stay for six months. I don't care. You can't complain about it for six months. You can't get freaked out for six months. See what happens. And uh, I did. You did. I did that. Yeah. I and I and um, it became. It's like the sort of. It's the thing that now I'm often most associated with. I'm the girl who moved from New York to Nebraska. The the piece that we're, that we're talking about. The piece called My Misspent Youth that was in the New Yorker. It ends with me saying I moved to Lincoln. So and it came out right after I had moved there. So what happened was I I. I rolled into town and basically everyone who reads the New Yorker in Lincoln, which is a very self-congratulating bunch, you know, um, called me up and invited me over for dinner. So, so I had instantly a, had, a, I had, yeah, I had instantly, I was, it was not a very ironically, like I was there in search of authenticity and I lived the least authentic existence because I was like this, this, this character, you know, it's time. almost like you were a minor version of that person you wanted to be in the, in the, New York pages, the quirky person of yes, and I had um yeah, and I I had a, a house that I was renting the the you know an apartment and a house and it had these beautiful wood floors and this woodwork yeah, yeah but I mean it wasn't I, I I was I was like a really really low rent version of of that person. What did you enjoy about it, and what did you not enjoy about it, and what made you uh, leave? Wow. Well, what I enjoyed about it was. Um, I, the, the land, this sounds really cheesy, but, um, I ended up, uh, moving out to a little farm, you know, met, you know, some, I had this crazy boyfriend and, uh, who, who was quite eccentric, but knew what he was doing in a sort of farm sense. So, um, because of him, um, I was able to have this experience of, of living out. We had about 12 acres and we had animals and, um, and I, I wrote a novel when I was there. I, really? I wrote, yeah, I wrote a novel called the quality of life report, which was inspired by my experience. Yeah. We will not say based on, um, okay. it was about, uh, it, it, it dealt with a lot of these issues of, of what's authentic and what's not and, and just geography and what it means to be living in a very crowded space mm-hmm. in terms of your ambitions and, and your sense of risk taking yeah. versus living in a, in a, wide open space. I think that when you live in a very crowded area, the stakes seem very high. Like if you make a mistake, you know, if you, if you fail this test, you will not get into the right school and your whole life will be ruined. Whereas I noticed in Nebraska that people just like screwed up again and again and again and again. And, and they still like lived in a pretty nice house. Like that was just sort of amazing to me. Like they had a kid at 18 and then another one, like, right. 20 years later because they were still only like you know 40 (laughs) so and and they still like you know had a really decent life so that was revelatory to me um and the reason i eventually left uh it was hard for me to leave actually i i i thought moving here is the best thing i ever did um and if i stay too long it's going to turn into the worst thing i ever did and i stayed four years um so i naturally moved to LA. Why did you think it was going to be the worst thing that you ever did? Because it would limit the amount of culture you would be exposed to? Uh, I wasn't so much a, a culture thing. I felt like I had a lot of friends, but I didn't have people who sort of, I didn't, ha- I don't I didn't feel like I was in like a, a situation with peers. I, I don't yeah. mean that like I had no peers kind of thing. I meant like, I just didn't, I didn't have a sense of professional camaraderie and also you know there's just a lot of when you live in a town like that you do a lot of like 
going to the bar and, you know, sitting on the porch, drinking wine and eating brie from the Hy-Vee supermarket. I mean, that was pretty which, much every which, night. But which absolutely has its own charm. And there is yep. like a something so, uh, you know, I'm from the Midwest and there is something so awesome about those moments when you're out in the prairie and there's a quietness there and you don't feel claustrophobic and you're not obsessed with what everybody else is doing because people aren't walking by you at 100 miles an hour late for something. Everybody is sitting and you're looking at the sunset. And you're literally tiny. You're yeah. tiny. The sky is huge. The storms. It's like you see why people started to, why people were, are religious and think that God is punishing them. I mean, it's that big. Yeah. Yeah. It really, your sense of yourself in the world is so affected by where where you're living and the the pace at which people are living uh, around you. Uh, so then you you moved to uh, L.A. as a as a freelance writer. Yeah, I had my excuse. I, I had I had sold this novel and um, I I had a movie deal attached to it. So I had my excuse for moving to L.A. was that I had been hired to write the screenplay for this film. It, it would, there was no need to. Nobody was asking me to move to L.A., but I kind of told everybody that I had to. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I still I, I I had this dog. You know, I got a puppy when I lived there, and now he was this big sheep dog and. I, I wanted to do right by him, so I moved to Topanga Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not the best place for single person who works at home, who's yeah. new to town. The Topanga Canyon, uh, for those outside of L.A., is uh, it was kind of the uh, center in the 60s of the hippie commune. Um, it's it, It's not easy to get to and from. It's No, it's up... I wish it's it was, kind of remote. Yeah, it's remote. It's rural. Like people have goats and things. I mean, it's yeah. up in the Santa Monica Mountains. Again, a, yeah. a, 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 a beautiful kind of fantasy, exactly. but the reality of it. Oh, yeah. So it seems like in your life, you keep painting these fantasies in your head and you go and you pursue them and they work for a while and then something about them kind of... Yeah. makes you realize there's more to it than you had pictured in your head. It's usually that I get lonely. I mean, I pay the amount of money that I have spent like renting places and then breaking leases or whatever in order to experience this, live out this this picture that I have of something. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I you know, I, I have, yeah, I moved to Topanga. I rented this apartment above, you know, you're everything in Topanga. You're always renting an apartment above somebody's garage or you're right. always renting somebody's guest house and they're always a little weird and yeah. there's always some weird vibe. Um, so I did that and I, you know, yeah, I thought it would be great. I thought I would like meet some sort of, you know, glass blower who lived in a yurt who had like, you know, also gone to Brown or something. You know what I mean? I, that didn't happen. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I got, I couldn't take it anymore. So, um, I, I moved down. I lived in Venice for a while. And then I actually went back to Nebraska for a while because I tried to buy a farm. I thought I was going to buy a farm. I literally like was in escrow on, on a farm. Yeah. It was $150,000. I mean, yeah. you know. So you were still in debt at this point? No, because I sold my novel and I got oh. out of debt. Yes. That's, oh, okay. that's No, what happened was I wrote this. I the, the reason going to Nebraska was so huge for me uh, in all sorts of ways was that I wrote this this book about the experience and um, I sold it for quite a bit of money, and I was able to get out of debt. How exciting was that the day you found out that you sold your novel? Oh, not exciting, because 
I became fixated on how I was going, going to thank my agent and how I was, and, and what the proper thing to do was and how I was going to show my gratitude. I immediately went from like, oh my God, all, like literally all my financial problems were solved overnight. I, I, I had about 30 seconds of happiness and then I thought, oh my God, I have to, I have to send her flowers. You have one of the strongest critical voices in your head of any person I've, I've ever met. Really? I'm yes. so honored. Your, your difficulty living in the present moment is, is astounding that you just immediately go to the next fire that you create in your head. Yeah. It's, oh, thanks. It's, oh, um, wait. Oh, no, that's not, <laughs> sorry. Okay. You have, you have, there's so much of your life to me that I look at and I think she should just soak that in and enjoy it. And yet there, your voice in your head won't allow you to do that. No, because I'm so afraid of being inappropriate or being offensive or something, you know, like I all, like my mom, she was so concerned about whatever people, what people thought. So I was constantly being like pulled aside by her and said, you know, you, you didn't handle that situation right. You know, and you know, in these very earnest tones, you know, very self-righteous tones saying like, you know, you really, um, you did not, um, that was not a, that was not a good behavior. That was not something that we want, you know? So that is just constantly in my head. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I think all kids have a seed of some version of their parents' voice or, or their peers planted in their head that that we just naturally kind of don't question because it's so subtle and it's so subliminal that we we actively have to question it and then begin to try to silence it, and it's a huge. It's a huge undertaking, and I think it's a kind of a lifelong thing. But yeah. um, having only known you for two hours, uh, I I feel like I can say to you, you deserve to be nicer to yourself. Oh. You really you you would not be lame or lazy or weak or rude or self indulgent to be nicer to yourself. You you owe it to yourself to be easier on yourself and to enjoy what a great life you've created for yourself see now i feel embarrassed somebody (laughs) somebody had to tell me megan somebody had to tell me that the first time i went to therapy my uh, my therapist said to me you are so hard on yourself you are so incredibly critical of yourself i had no idea and i still am to this day it's a constant ongoing battle are you are you critical are you equally critical to other people or how, or I'm you, much harder fir- on you're myself. You're first in line. I, I'm yeah. cr- critical of other people, but I'm much harder on myself. Uh, but I used to be equally hard on both. But it's easier for me to lay off my criticism of other people than it is for that to to lay off being critical to myself. I think that's the hardest one, right? Because the there's this lie that that if we're not self-critical, we're being lazy and weak, and that is such a lie. It's such a lie. If you if you just connect to your conscience and think about what is the right thing to do, that to me is the most important self-analysis we need to do. The, the beating ourselves up because we don't think we're working hard enough or we're too dumb or that, all of that I think is, is a waste of, of self-reflection. Yeah. I think that's bad self-reflection. No, I know, but again, it's like this self-soothing thing. 
Like if I'm beating myself up. But there's a better I, soothing I that you haven't tried. That's what I think I'm trying to say. There's a better soothing that, like that you can replace that with. Like some kind of prescription, you mean? Or what? <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's necessary. But there is a, the glimpses I've had of being able to love myself and be comfortable with myself. I wish for you that you, that you could experience, because it's there. You just have to find a way to grab it and take it and feel that it that you're not being lame, that it is really true, that you do deserve to be nice to yourself. Yeah. But but I don't, it, you can't get know there. What to say. You can get there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if, I, if no, I'm com- if I'm coming. No, I just feel unco- I, this is what I say. Like I feel I, I don't have my checkbook with me, so I can't. It's kind of like therapy. Like, I but so I can't, hope. But I, can't I so hope that I'm do- I, that I'm not coming across as <laughs> no, 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 as no, I know condescending like, oh, no, or no, preaching. It's like it's part of. The, I also know that like, this is like. Because you know, I, I recognize in what I hear in you, I so recognize is having the same thing in me that ha- haunts me and hounds me every single day, but I get glimpses of relief from it. And I get the feeling that yeah. you're not even getting the glimpses of, of relief from it. Uh, or if do, I or do, do I feel like I'm not being vigilant. Yes. And yeah. You're, but yeah. You're, yeah. Yes. I know. Yeah. 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 Silence that part. Silence that part. I know. That is that is destroying. I think the fabric of of our society because we it it keeps us from being present. It keeps us from connecting to people on a on a way. You can tell when you're connecting with somebody because you can tell when they're really listening and their eye contact is really honed in and they're not kind of half listening, thinking about the future. Yeah. No, I do. Look, I mean, there are things I like to talk. I like people. I don't. I actually do think that I am capable of being in the moment in a conversation. Right. Like I think we are right, right now, now actually. Absolutely. And I have, you know, and I really value my friendships and I have friends who I think we can really get in there. So right. I don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like, I don't like, you know, it's not like right. I'm this vortex of no. self 24 hour self-loathing. Right. It's right. just more of a day job. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. no, I think I, I, I know what you're saying and I, and I, and Forgive me if it seems as if uh, no, no, um, no. I, mean, I am. I've heard I'm this pointing before. You, pointing. Not that you're not original. Okay, okay. <laughs> I've heard it before. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, and like I said, I, I really hope this doesn't come across as me saying, "Hey, I've got it figured out. Here's what you need to do." I'm not. I'm saying, "Hey, we're both alike." And but how every many... once in a while, I get I get a reprieve from this, and it feels awesome. You should try. So, this. how many times a day would you say that you feel self loathing? <sighs> 40 40 yeah mm-hmm. so that's like a that's couple, a rough couple estimate. times an hour yeah not couple, including couple, sleeping so yes, more than a couple times an hour right. I, I think to myself and then i would say maybe four or five times a day i'll have anywhere from 30 seconds to an hour of really being present really being okay with who i am and and in, in enjoying life now is there something that you're doing generally when yeah. that happens yeah recognizing that voice in my head that's telling me i should be i should be doing more no but uh, is there like an activity like if you're meditate, writing or something like um, that meditating talking to people on the phone yeah. about whatever fear i'm going through um uh, doing something nice uh, for somebody uh doing something nice for myself, reading a book, even though I feel like I should be working. Oh, isn't that the worst? You can't even read because you're like, I'm wasting my time, even though I have to read in order to, well, the, that's I the have first, to write about this book. <laughs> that's the first impulsive thought is, is to think I shouldn't be reading. I shouldn't, I should be working. Yeah. But isn't the whole reason we work to enjoy our life? So 
at what point does the work end and the enjoying the life begins? You know, I, I, there's there's this there, we have this kind of ingrained belief, I think that that if we work hard enough, our our, our lives are going to have this kind of orgasm of success eventually, yeah. Yeah. and we forget the break, along the, the way. Score. Yes, and we and we kind of become so single minded single minded in the pursuit of that, we wind up. For, forgive this awful uh, analogy. We wind up giving our life a cold uh, mechanical hand job uh, on the way to on the way to that orgasm, and it's like you should just sh- go into anthropology. Though, <laughs> oh no, you're a guy. You can't. It's only for women. Yeah. For, forgive that. You know that that crude analogy, but it suddenly occurred to me uh, a couple of weeks ago that when I get into this rut, it's because I'm doing that. I'm I'm so focused on the goal, I forget the way in which I go about the goal should even be more important than than the goal. See, because- I, yeah, I, I feel like I've gotten better about that in terms of work, though. Like, I think one of the things that's happened with the like all these businesses that have changed so much, you can't, you know, show business has changed, publishing has changed, you're not going to get the big book deal anymore necessarily. Right. So it's very, like I was saying, it's like very niche. And I think that I, what's, in the last few years, I have felt much better about having the readers I have like I don't need to be a best-selling author I don't need to go on Oprah but if I can get emails from people who say hey what you wrote was really meaningful to me that actually does make me very happy so I have I, I am happy to say I've gotten away from that on, on my in terms of my work but you know. well, you're a great writer I mean oh, you're the, the you. stuff of yours that that, that I read I I, I really enjoyed it. You paint a fantastic picture, not not only of circumstances, but the emotional kind of landscape of what people are going through when when they're uh, when they're in that. And uh, you have a really uh, a really fun way of expressing uh, expressing that. Oh, so thank uh, you. Yeah, I, uh, isn't it funny sometimes that, that we're how we can be the last person to be a fan of us. Oh yeah. Well, I don't, I don't want that kind of fan. <laughs> Look, do you feel like doing, uh, uh, did, did, did yeah, I, did I, have, I leave no, out? I have notes here. No, but, I, I have, well, I have what you said. Did you, you know. were there any seminal moments that, uh, oh. that we didn't get to that you wanted to get to? Oh, no, I mean, I don't know. We probably don't have, I mean, that's okay. I have some, but we don't have to, I mean, they might take too long to explain. Unless you, I mean, let's, you want to just do time. them? Yeah, let's see how we are on time. Um, yeah, yeah, we got, we got, if you got time, I got time. So seminal moments or yeah. like shame, oh, my shame moment. Well, We se- can do shame moments later. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, oh, seminal moments. No, I don't really, I, you know, I feel like it's like I, you have them and then I sort of forget them or like they seem less important. Like I, I, I feel like I always have them when I'm in a relationship and you know, it's, it's going to end eventually. Like I remember like the moment. He, the guy did something and I knew I had to break up with him. Right. You know what I mean? Like right, we right. have these. Um, but I mean more in terms of, of discovering who we are. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it was that, that moment riding the bus, I think, you know, That's a great that, one. that I, and it was just like, you have to leave New York. Yeah. You are going to die if you stay on this Island and it's sad and I'm sorry. And I know you love it here and I know it's all you ever wanted and you love your friends, but you can't, continue to live here. Oh, and only New York could be so 
tough to access that the bohemian lifestyle is inaccessible. Yeah, and it's really sad. I mean, that's something that made me really angry and, and, and was the driving force behind that essay was that it's it's just a combination of Reaganomics, literally, and, and the, the changing socioeconomics of the city. You know, I wasn't asking to be wealthy. I was asking to, to like, eke by in, in a semi-interesting fashion. Yeah. In, in, in a building that is falling apart and smells like and urine. And has mice. Right, and has yeah, mice. I had mice leaping out of my toaster. And you couldn't afford to live there anymore. No. Wow. No. Wow. And you know what? I still couldn't. Isn't that sick? I mean, I have a I have a really nice lifestyle here in L.A. And, you know, we have a great house. We bought a foreclosure. We got really lucky. But we still couldn't go back to New York. If we went back to New York, we would be living not well. Yeah. And here we live fantastically, actually. I mean, not, in a, not by Hollywood standards. Sure. By print journalist standards. Right, right. Uh, so do you want to do... Uh... Fear off, shame off. Uh, Any I could of those? do. I could do. I, I have fears. Okay. I could do fear off. Uh, I'm going to have to access a. Um, Am I doing it with you, or are you with a reader, with a listener? You're gonna. You're gonna compete with a uh, a listener. Oh, good. You want to go first? I go first. Okay. Do I know who I'm doing this with? Yes, you're going to be doing this with uh, Amber, aka Moon Unit, and. Um, I am afraid that my ambivalence about having a child will cause my husband to resent me and put a strain on our marriage. Uh, Amber says, I'm afraid uh, that since I was 12 years old, I've believed that life was some absurd game with insane stakes that you have to play perfectly or you are doomed to live a poor, unhappy, isolated existence. I'm af- I, mean, I am still afraid that this is true. I am afraid that my reasons for not wanting a child are so neurotic that I'm doomed to be alone and unhappy, no matter how at peace I am with that decision. Uh, I am afraid that my children will hate me eventually. That's those kind of link up. I am afraid that people who email me and leave comments on my articles telling me I'm an idiot and a fraud are right. (laughs) That's such an awesome one. I love when somebody else has the exact same fear I do. Mm. Uh, I'm afraid that everyone is scheming to take advantage of me or the people I love. Oh, and she she puts in parentheses, this is why I never reveal anything about myself to anyone. Mm. I am afraid that I have no idea how big my ass is. That's, I can't believe that this is the first one we've we've had in in since what six eight months. I cannot believe that that is the first time somebody oh, somebody really? said that one because I think oh, everybody yeah. everybody has that uh, that fear. Um, Amber says I'm afraid that if I don't imagine every worst case scenario before a new interaction or activity, that the one that I overlook will occur. That's a great one. I am afraid that when my dog eventually dies, I won't be able to go on. Oh. I'm afraid that my projected image is entirely transparent and everyone is secretly laughing and pitying me behind my back. I am afraid that some huge bill is going unpaid, like a tax bill or a credit card or some student loan that I forgot about, and I don't realize it and I'm unknowingly living way beyond my means. I'm afraid that if I reveal all my paranoid thoughts to someone I care about, they will abandon me. I'm afraid that when I have a party, people come only out of obligation and have a bad time. (laughs) 
I fear being in a situation where I witness a crime and I do not mentally note or remember the detail that would break the case. Oh, that's mm, a great wow. one. Wow, yeah. I am afraid that the fact that I'm more into puppies than babies means I'm a sociopath. Uh, I am afraid that both of my parents will die feeling guilty for their parenting mistakes when I blame them for nothing, and I know they did the best they could. Wow, that one's really... She's good. That's com- that's complex. Yeah. Um, okay, well, this this is my last one, and it, it kind okay. of needs a setup. Um, so, you know you know how you, you go through life and you try to assume that your worldview even if it seems to be not the majority one is actually ultimately right. Like, yeah. like you hate, like, like the things that you hate, like, like the, you know what I hate are like those stickers on car, like the family stickers on the cars. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of stuff that I, I hate. Like, and I, I'd like to think that, that I'm actually right to hate that. And mm-hmm. that like the stuff that I, you know, the, my, the work that I do, even though it's not up everybody's alley is like, you know, ultimately valuable. So, so I fear that, like I'm going to die and go into some sort of like judgment situation. And the, the, the judges will actually have really bad taste and be, <laughs> be of the school of people that don't get it. Like, like the ju- the people deciding what happens to me will have family stickers on the yeah. car. Like it'll be those, those people. And, and all this time I'll, I will have been wrong about right. my sensibility and so, and they'll say, oh, you, you are an asshole after all. Yeah. Oh, and you're going to God. hell. And then and in hell, Mariah Carey will be playing all the time. <laughs> uh, and and that, that's your last one? Yeah, that's my last one. Uh, Amber says, uh, I'm afraid that my mother will eventually be successful at one of her, quote, cry for help suicide attempts. Uh, and then her last one is, I'm afraid that the human race as a group has spiraled so far into apathy that we will in fact become the first known species on earth to cause its own extinction while in possession of the wherewithal technology and knowledge to prevent it. Wow, Amber. Yeah, that was a great one. Pretty good. For some reason, I just got this this uh, feeling of deja vu that I've done her fears before. Uh, I, I'm doing a really bad job of keeping track of the fears that listeners send in, and uh, I need to kind of organize those better, so apologies if uh, if I had read those. But, you know, there's there's something so soothing to me when somebody can articulate a fear that is just a gray ball inside me that I've never been able to specifically uh, articulate what it is that, that, uh, that, that is scaring me. Yeah. And sometimes I don't even think of it as a fear. I think of it as, as a truth, as an underlying right. truth. Yes. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. I, I think that speaks to how ingrained that critical voice is in you that yeah. you, that you begin to not even see that as, as being fear. But right. I think everybody, I think everybody um, has trouble recognizing fear for what it is. We think of it as motivation or discipline or structure, but oftentimes it's it, it keeps us from enjoying the, the life that is already there and it already is beautiful, but we don't give ourselves the per- per- permission to enjoy it or, or, or access it. And that's uh, so it's so such a bummer in so many ways that we don't that we don't do that because there's no reason. It's not like we're in a refugee camp starving. You know, we make up. We live in such a great country. We have to make up shit for to stress us out. But then we'd be thin if we were in a refugee camp. And I wouldn't have to worry about my ass. That that's it, the one thing. That, that's really the one, you know, that would take care of that. 
But people, people yeah. do look pretty good in a refugee camp. I know. I have to say. I know. Maybe that's why they're getting chased across the border. <laughs> or did they look bad first they and should, then they get? They should really set up a a, a Condé Nast office yes. in Ethiopia or something. Well, then the nice thing that. is, is when they do go back to their village that they were chased out of, they're so much thinner. Nobody's going to recognize them. They'll think, oh, yeah. Some new beautiful family moved into the teepee. They should send people in the witness protection program to uh, developing world to to famine stricken countries. I've got a new fear that people listening to this think I'm callous and insensitive and a douchebag. Yeah, I know. That's because you had me on. See, now I feel guilty because I've I've led you down my path. I get yeah, but it'll be the same people. It's not going to be the same people, but it'll be whole new people yeah. saying I'm an asshole. But, well, what, yeah. what what else did you uh, did you prepare? Did you bring any uh, memories of of shame? <sighs> I haven't had listeners send in any shame s- stuff, so I'm gonna, I'm I would have to uh, kind of Miles Davis it and <laughs> think of uh, shameful shameful episodes um, uh, from my past. Yeah, you know, I had this. Uh, this goes back again to like growing up in the affluent suburb. I had a science teacher in seventh grade, Mr. Room Room. And uh, he he was great. I really liked him. And um, it was the end of the year, end of the school year. And I said, what are you, you going to do this summer, Mr. Room? And he said, I'm going to be working at the school. And I said, oh, are you teaching your class or what is it? And he said, no, I'm going to be working as a janitor. I'm going to be like cleaning the walls and things and, you know, making extra money that way. And, you know, I was like this 13-year-old in this world where nobody, again, nobody we knew did that kind of work. It was like the dads worked on Wall Street mm-hmm. and the moms played tennis. And I was like, what? You are, why? I said, why are you working as a janitor? And he just said, With well, that kind of attitude, like... I, it wasn't even like, uh, it, it wasn't disdain. It was shock, right. confusion. Why? And he said, well, I need the money. You know, I have a new baby. We, we need the money. And I, I was so stunned. And I don't think it was until... I, I, I didn't really think about it in this episode until I started thinking about it again several years later. And it was... I'm just horrified by it. Yeah. Like, I, I just... You know, it, it wasn't... I, I didn't mean to be that way. I didn't... It was just a, an, an illustration of how provincial... I was, and a kid can be, and I wasn't even as bad as most of the other kids. I mean, right. I dare say that that uh, out of anybody, I was, pr- I would probably, <laughs> my my, you know, I, I would be less shocked by that than somebody else. But I've always wanted to go back and find Mister Room and apologize for that. I really have, yeah. but I don't know where he is. I've Googled him. Well, I've got one that I think will make you feel uh, less less shame. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, our class took a trip to uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, the junior class at my high school would always you'd make this, this trip and you'd see the Capitol and all the other stuff. We didn't give a shit, most of us, about any of the history or any of that. It was a chance for us to hang out, try to sneak liquor into our hotel room at night, smoke weed, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, uh, being a, a, a narcissist and, and somebody that is constantly trying to get attention and make people laugh being on a, a bus full of all your peers driving around Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Captive you know, audience, literally. Absolutely. And I remember um, Mr. Paralay 
was the one of the teachers that was you know kind of guiding us super nice guy actually a dad of, of one of my close friends and uh, we were on the bus and he said okay we're gonna you know go see this and then we're gonna go see that now from the back of the by uh, of the bus I said and when are we gonna go see the ghetto and everybody laughed and his face got so red and uh, oh and he just just tore me a new asshole that you know that I he yelled at it, you right there yeah he didn't yell but he in his so many words he let me know that I was a pompous insensitive shallow little fuck um, who was using the misery of other people to try to make myself look better which is exactly what I was doing and was he from the ghetto did you get that sense no but he was a, a, a teacher who was um, he wasn't living in the town I mean that's the thing it's like it's like Mr. Vroom he couldn't yeah, afford yeah. to he live lived there. In, he, he lived in actually in Flossmoor but they w- were I think always kind of um, I don't know about struggling to make ends meet, but they were not wealthy. Of course, were right, not wealthy, right. and and so I think um, they, they drove the kids probably had nicer cars than the teachers. That's oh, kind absolutely, of thing. Yeah. in in, yeah. in in my high school. But uh, I remember feeling my f- immediately knowing that I had sold my soul for that. 15 seconds to try to get attention and that he was absolutely right and I, I felt really really deeply shamed and that kind of stuck with me for a for a long time but sadly would not be the last time I uh you know exploited other people to uh, get attention for but myself do you ever think about that like when you're writing comedy or stand-up like do you think of that moment and say does this qualify as that yes. kind of moment absolutely because there's a line obviously there is and, yeah. and the line has changed actually uh in the last seven or eight years for me it used to be that anybody was fair game and you know when you're young and you're a comedian you think that putting anybody down especially people that can't defend themselves as being edgy uh, and then the older you get, you begin to realize that that that's not, you know, just because you're unafraid to be cold and feelingless, that's not edgy. That That's you actually being scared of not being paid attention to. And I began to see that. And now the kind of line that I draw is I, I, tr- I try not to make fun of, first of all, people that have no control over what I would be making fun of them over and people that that don't consciously um, enter into the public uh, spotlight. Yeah, of course. Uh, you yeah. know, if you're a politician yeah. and you've yeah. chosen to enter the, po- you know, the, the the spotlight, I believe that you're yeah, you're absolutely fair yeah. game. But like, you know, children of celebrities and stuff yeah. like that, I don't I, I, I can't make make fun of them because they don't they, they well, didn't, they didn't they sign didn't, up for it. They didn't. They didn't sign up for it. Yeah, but uh, I didn't used to be that way because I was so convinced. The negative voice in my head had so convinced me that I needed to do anything to survive, to get by, to get attention. But I think that's called being a creative person in your twenties and and even thirties. I mean, I used to write these big controversial essays and really go all out, and you know, sometimes making fun of people, but just saying outrageous things and. I I I really have reined it in now. I don't write that way anymore. But in a in a way, sometimes I'm almost nostalgic for that time. Not th- because I was being a jerk sometimes, but because there's a sort of exuberance to it mm-hmm. in a way. It's a sort of I always think of it as I, I wrote with a clueless abandon, you know. Yeah. And and um, that I think it's an important 
stage to go through for an artist in a way like you've got to over you've got to overdo it absolutely so you could then so that when you rein it back you're still up you know what i mean yeah and 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 i think oftentimes an artist is defined more by what they don't do than by what they do Mm. um maybe not more by what they don't do but certainly it it becomes very important when people choose not to not to do something that is that is easy you know where all the other uh kind of uh, cattle are grazing right um not go for the obvious joke i feel like that that was a, a stage in in my progression as a comedian when i could do a joke that i knew would kill but i chose not to do it because it was too obvious mm. or or too uh, unoriginal and that is a really hard thing when you're an attention whore. That's a really hard thing to. Uh... Well, it's hard too because I I know from you know writing books and then when I go out and do readings, I mean there will be jokes or passages that I think are just totally cheap, and the audience they go for it every time. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, Ugh! and then, and in a way, you, I think that's also an acceptance. Though I'm not talking about things that are that are mean necessarily, but just right. kind of. You know, the the, the just a little, too obvi- mainstream. A little too mainstream is sort of obvious, and yeah. you know, and and it's like I. But I think there's a maturity too in not cutting that line because it's you know my temptation is just to cut the line or even to stop and be like, oh, of course you guys are laughing at that, like you know, right. call attention to it, and just you know, kind of like you know what, be professional, keep it in, move along. Right, that's important too. Yeah, and, and and I think there is you can you can kind of get into a trap as an artist where you become too rigid about you know if oh if it's accessible if everybody can get it it's too mainstream right. it's bad no some things are great and original and accessible and you know like I think the uh, comedian uh, Brian Regan is a is a great example of a, of a comedian who is uh, super original super funny and completely accessible. You know, the, the comedians like that are are, are kind of a, a rarity, um, but uh, but I digress. I'm. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have to look him up. I don't know him. Yeah, he's uh, he's great. He's uh, absolutely G-rated and mm. uh, loved by loved by his peers and uh, loved by by audiences. Um, is there anything else that you uh, you wanted to talk about before before we wrap this up? I don't think so. I mean, I could go on and on, but. Yeah. Why do that? We uh we've actually uh I think we let's see. How long have we been talking? Cuz if it was therapy just ther- shy if, of if, 2 hours. Oh, if it was therapy, how much would this cost? <laughs> oh, fuck, this would be about it's three, like $500. Three, three yeah, well it depends yeah, three, what part of town. I could I could never charge if what we were I would. In Beverly Hills, it would yeah. be 5, yeah, easily. Oh yeah, it would be. My psychiatrist is 200 an hour. Oh yeah, but is that just medication? And that's only a half hour. Yeah, right. That's, that's not that's even just, therapy. That's just the check in. Yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus, I'm so terrified <laughs> of wrong, losing. We're in the wrong line of work. I'm so terrified of losing losing uh, health insurance. Oh yeah. yeah, that's a big one. That was another reason actually that I got into debt was because I didn't have health insurance and I had a lot of dental bills. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a huge one. Mm. Well, uh, Megan, <laughs> on I, that I, note, I. <laughs> I uh, I want to thank you for uh, for coming by, especially coming by and talking with somebody that you've never even met before that you were just trusting uh, was was not going to be uh, a dick. 
Well, I feel like I know you because I have listened. I, I'm I'm a fan of the show, and and I've listened to quite a few of them. So well, it wasn't you. quite. It wasn't totally cold, okay. you know. Well, I I appreciate it, and um, for people that want to read your uh, your writing, they should go to megandom.com. Yes. And it's m e g h a n d a u m. Yes. Dot dot com. And did yes. I pronounce your name correctly? Uh, whatever. It doesn't. Matter. Look at you. Whatever. Look at the, look at... I'm letting it go right now. <laughs> if this if this was TV, you'd see it. It would be drifting. <laughs> it would be like a thought bubble. It would be letting it go. But it's audio, so we just have to take my word for it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming by, Megan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. And uh, I shot Megan an, an email to let her know I was uh, re-airing her episode, and uh, she has been up to a lot, as you can imagine, in the 11 years since we recorded that. Uh, she has a Substack uh, page that you can go check her out at, and her uh, Substack name is her name, which is Megan Dahm, M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. And she also has uh, two podcasts, one that uh, she does by herself called The Unspeakable and another one that she does with a, a co-host uh, called A Special Place in Hell. So I will, and she's on Twitter, um, but I will put the links to all of her stuff um, in the show notes for this podcast. And I hope... I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. And if you're out there and you're struggling, never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.